0: Clean line design that sets it apart from the look-alike. Business is built on data, facts, and figures. It's also made up of some of the most fascinating stories the world has known. What makes business tick? What are the stories we can find in their failures and victories? Get ready to find out what some of today's leaders were thinking. Right now, on Business Disrupted. Here is your host, Ted Gavin.
1: Welcome to Business Disrupted. Today's topic, showdown at Neiman Marcus, the story of a debacle wrapped in a catastrophe covered in fiasco. Our guest today from Madison, Wisconsin is super lawyer rated bankruptcy attorney Michael Richman. Michael practices at the law firm Steinhober Swanson LLP. He's an expert in bankruptcy law and legal ethics, and he's a former president of the American Bank Institute. Michael is also an adjunct professor of law at the, of the University of Wisconsin-Madison, Go Badgers. Michael's here to help us as we explore how many things people can do bad. Failure of one famous retail chain. But first, a disclaimer: everything we're talking about today is sourced from other media outlets and the public records of the bankruptcy court proceedings and the criminal charges filed. All parties are presumed innocent until proven guilty in law. Chapter one: Brother, can you spare eight hundred twenty-two million dollars? In early May 2020, Neiman Marcus filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection with more than $5.1 billion of debt in its structure. How did a chain with only 68 stores manage to run up that much debt? Easy. Neiman Marcus had been purchased in a leveraged buyout by large investors. What is a leveraged buyout? Well, simply put, it's when a company is purchased by using the company's assets to secure that the company borrows to pay off the seller. The buyer uses the company's assets to finance its acquisition by putting debt on the company being acquired. If you're the seller, you don't care because you're selling price in cash right away. If you're the buyer, you lose because you acquire the company using far less of your own cash than if you had simply paid for the company yourself. And if the company doesn't do well, the risk of failure is borne largely by the company you've bought because that's where the debt is and not by the buyer. A buyer in an LBO basically gotten itself for the buyer. When Neiman Marcus declared bankruptcy, they also had a plan. A bankruptcy plan, in fact. And the bankruptcy proposed provided that the two senior tranches of debt totaling $1.8 billion would get paid in full. Two tranches of extended term loans totaling about $2.2 billion would receive 87% of the stock in the post-bankruptcy company, with the remaining 13% of the new company stock sprinkled around the other $1.1 billion of debt that wasn't getting paid anything other than stock. The existing owners of the company weren't going to get any part of the post-bankruptcy business. And that's exactly how bankruptcy generally works. Equity is considered the lowest form of the capital structure, and lower creditors don't get anything if more senior creditors aren't paid in full or if those senior creditors don't consent to value flowing to the junior creditors or stockholders. But the owners weren't in it for the equity. What they would get under the plan were releases from potential liability. And that was important because before the bankruptcy was filed, some unusual things happened. In 2017, Neiman Marcus owned MyTeresa, which according to the MyTeresa website, is an industry leading luxury fashion retailer, and which was Neiman Marcus's most valuable asset. In 2017, the company that would later declare bankruptcy designated MyTeresa as what is called an unrestricted subsidiary. And in 2018, the company transferred MyTeresa to a newly created entity called Neiman Marcus Group Inc. not be a debtor. This transaction took assets from Neiman Marcus, which again was settled with over $5 billion in debt, and moved those assets away to a corporate entity that Neiman Marcus's creditors could not reach. Some people might call this asset stripping. Marble Ridge Capital, a hedge fund that specialized in investing in securities of distressed situations and who was a participant in Neiman Marcus's debt structure, called it a fraudulent conveyance. Michael Richman, let's talk about two things here. First, what the heck kind of name for a clothing retailer is My Teresa? And second, what are the moving parts of a fraudulent conveyance?
2: So first, Ted, thank you so much for the honor of being your guest on the show. I'm really grateful to be able to do this with you. Um, So I actually have an answer to the first question because you told me you were going to ask me that, so I looked it up. And Teresa was the name of a luxury German clothing company uh that very high end and very successful and their website was my Teresa. and when neiman marcus purchased that asset in 2014 they for some reason decided not to change the name to associate it with anything related to neiman marcus so uh, that's the best answer i can give you i don't think it was very clever marketing (laughs)
1: So, so mystery solved it was it should have been mine Teresa. (laughs)
2: Mine Teresa, or my Neiman, or I don't know. I don't know why they didn't change the name. But your second question uh, was fraudulent conveyance. Uh, Now, we we talked earlier about how this whole story that we're about to tell and comment on could be a screenplay. Uh, And I've been thinking a lot about that, and I came up with the opening scene. And in the opening scene of the movie, there will be a drone flying over the most gorgeous English countryside. You'll just see English countryside until you come to a crest. And on the crest are a large flock of sheep. Now, Ted, what does that make you think of? Yes. Why would we... Getting need into a law school of? exercise. The answer is the original case that established fraudulent conveyance law as we know it today 420 years ago, Twine's case. Now, I'm going to take two seconds to talk about the facts because it's a very simple case. Pierce owned the sheep. Pierce owed 400 pounds to Twine, and he owed 200 pounds to another creditor. Twine and Pierce got together and worked out a deal where Pierce signed a deed to give his sheep and other assets to Twine in satisfaction for Twine's debt, where Twine was owed 400 pounds. Assume for the sake of this discussion that the sheep were only worth 300 pounds. Notwithstanding that transfer, which was good with Twine, Pierce kept the sheep and branded them with his own marks and continued to use the sheep as if they were its own. And when the sheriff in an action by the other creditor came to seize the sheep. All the people in the countryside said, no, those sheep were given to twine. They were sold to twine. They were given to twine. And indeed, you can't take them and sell them to satisfy the judgment of seed. The point is, in this very original stark Chamber decision in England, establishing fraudulent conveyance law, we have what's called a badge of fraud, where the person who transferred the property still basically maintained ownership of it and used it as if it were its own. Now, what does that have to do with asset stripping? Well, because in the My Teresa situation, to the outside world, it was still Neiman Marcus's property. But what they did was they moved it from one corporate structure where numerous creditors had access to it in the event of a default to a different part of the corporate family where only a couple of creditors had access to it. But otherwise, it was a Neiman Marcus property before and a Neiman Marcus property after. Twine's case.
1: The key point that you've made in the Twine's case is that in a fraudulent conveyance or a fraudulent transfer, the asset moves, whether it moves in actuality or just moves on paper, it moves. But the, the creditors attached to the Place where it originally was are not getting reasonably equivalent value for what then becomes out of their reach, and in essence, you're not selling anything; you're just moving it a little further away from the creditors, and therein lies the crux. So, Marble Ridge was so unhappy with these asset stripping transactions that they sued Neiman Marcus. They claimed that the owners of Neiman Marcus foreseen the company's financial troubles, that the company was over leveraged, or had too much debt. The 2018 transactions. And that the 2018 restructuring actually left the company in a worse financial shape than it was before the restructuring. Marble Ridge lost one suit when it was, it was in the case. The defendants then filed a defamation suit against Ridge. Other suits were between the parties as well. And that's how Marble Ridge and Neiman Marcus's owners spent the two years after the restructuring, basically suing each other. And then the bankruptcy was filed. Chapter two, the thing about bankruptcy. Bankruptcy is supposed to be a transparent process that allows for the full investigation of the debtor's pre-petition affairs. And when more than $1.1 million of creditors are getting their oxen pretty thoroughly gored in the bankruptcy, they're going to want to know why. Here's the other bankruptcy. Those creditors are going to look at the board of directors of the They're going to see nothing but insiders and people affiliated with the private equity owners of the debtor. And they're going to think to themselves, there's no way this board does an honest examination into their own conduct. So let's replace the board with a trustee or have an examiner appointed who will do an honest investigation. To prevent exactly that discussion, enter the independent directors. Michael, let's talk about directors. Why are they useful?
2: Well, directors are supposed to be experienced professional people who will help guide the decisions of a corporation in the interest of its stakeholders. Uh, And that generally speaking means equity in the first place but also for the protection of the value of the enterprise as a whole. Um, Sometimes directors also also help to steer a company's policies to be um, socially beneficial. Uh, But that's, that's the basic role of directors is to be the core decision makers of the enterprise.
1: And so with an independent director, if you have something that's happened that is questionable in the past and controlled by parties attendant to that questionable event, in this case the My Teresa transfer, you can you can help ensure proper corporate governance and proper independence of the board to investigate its own affairs by appointing board members who are not affiliated with the owners or the parties who are involved in those transactions, hence the term independent directors. Um, and, and they're typically appointed to, to remove the board and remove the investigation from the specter of the pre-petition activity. So, Michael, why do some people think independent directors are the embodiment of self-delusion on the part of people who think independent directors are useful?
2: Well, so the the problem is what happens when the decision makers, the directors, select the independent director because they have a relationship and they believe that that independent director is not going to be quite as independent. They're just not affiliated with the company. They're not a company officer. They're not otherwise close to the equity sponsors, a, a truly independent director um, who in as we say in bankruptcy speak, would be disinterested, uh, wouldn't, wouldn't have significant connections. But, but in, in many cases, directors and their sponsors, in seeking an independent director to immunize them, compound the problem by getting another relationship person to hold that title. And when that happens, it doesn't accomplish the purpose and it makes it look worse.
1: So the, the sensitivity is, is this a director really into, or are they a shill for the potential bad actor? Is that, is that a fair exactly. summary?
2: Exactly. Or, or, or are they closely enough related to parties who could be implicated by whatever the problem is that they're going to solve, whatever they're going to investigate, that uh, the parties selecting them can be assured that they will treat them softly.
1: Yep. Yeah. Because if, if, you've got, if you've got a large private equity fund that has lots and lots of companies that need lots and lots, uh, and they serial the same independent directors over and over again, then that independent director is at least perceptively less likely to find that this company did something wrong because they're looking for the next deal. That's, that's exactly. the allegation.
2: Exactly. Okay. And it doesn't have well, to be the equity sponsors. It could be other, it could be the law firms that represent them that do work for them in other contexts and make the bridges to these relationships happen. It could be other, what we would right. call referral sources that are in the mix.
1: As a as a bankruptcy attorney who I have known and respected for years once said, the world is round and life is long. <laughs> so it would be an understatement to say that Marble Ridge was the appointment of the independent directors by the company's owners. In an objection raised after the bankruptcy case was filed, Marble Ridge raised the very legitimate point that the problem with an independent director is that they are beholden to the private equity sponsors who appointed them in the first place, and that private equity sponsor could, therefore, terminate their appointment at any time. So because of this, while they may be disinterested, they're not all that independent. There is, naysayers would, well, say, a built-in incentive to not challenge the releases being proposed in the plan. There is an incentive for the independent director to not look hard for evidence of improper dealings by the equity funds that hired them. And that's the crux of the argument against independent directors, that if you make your living, be independent director. You can't keep doing that if you're going to bite the hand that hires you. So there's an economic incentive for the independent director to, if not look the other way, to at least slow-pedal the investigation, to not look, to not question releases, to not investigate pre-petition transactions. Of course, what an expert in legal ethics or corporate governance might call a pervasive and continuing conflict of interest. Marble Ridge focused on one of the disinterested uh, members, which is what the independent directors were called in this case, Mark Balanson. Marble Ridge claimed that Balanson was basically in the pocket of the private equity fund owners of Neiman Marcus that he gets his work from private equity funds, that he's dependent on those cases for his livelihood, and that in other cases where Balenson was an independent director, he had allegedly blessed other transactions that were later found improper by a court-appointed examiner. The other issue that plays here is the issue of relationships. Board members have great sway in hiring captured debtors. There's big money in representing a debtor. So Marble Ridge pointed out that Balenson had ties to a significant debtor law firm that he routinely sits on boards of companies that hire that law firm. Finally, Marble Ridge argued that the independent directors would waste hundreds of thousands of dollars and then millions in professional fees on what would essentially be a sham investigation, whereas a court-appointed examiner could do it for less money and it would be a legitimate investigation. Now, courtesy of the disrupted players, we take you to the May 29th hearing in the bankruptcy court. We join the court's cross-examination of Mark Balinson just as it begins.
2: Mr. Balinson, I, I need some help here. So in your own words, just tell me, you've been, you've been working on this for how long? I, I'm sorry, Mr. Uh, Balenson, no, no, no. I just couldn't hear you. Uh,
1: approximately a month.
2: All right. And what do you understand the issue to be?
1: Well, there's a number of issues, your honor, with regards to My Teresa. Okay. There are there are issues such as the, the designate the movement of My Teresa into a subsidiary. Subsequently, they took that subsidiary and designated it as a uh, I'm now forgetting the word. Um, I apologize. I'm forgetting the word. They designated it in a way where it would take it out of the de- unrestricted subsidiary. Okay. And, and then um, uh, there was a dividend of that unrestricted subsidiary to the parent company. There were some affiliate Propco transactions. There are three properties with a value of somewhere in the range of $70 million. And there's a large range, but, but this also moved to a subsidiary, and that subsidiary was also… Huh?
2: Right. So let's go, back. Let, let's go back to my Teresa. Sure. And I understand that you don't remember the word… And I'm not going to help you, but I want to understand what you believe the issue is.
1: Well, the issue ultimately is whether, well, there's a number of issues, Your Honor, because you can look at it from a number of different vantage points. Okay. One is whether it was an intentional fraudulent conveyance.
2: So why does that matter?
1: If it was an intentional fraudulent conveyance, there's a chance that it could be recovered for the benefit of the estate.
2: And so when you're looking at a transfer... Regardless whether it was an intentional fraudulent transfer or not, what matters?
1: What matters is how the recovery or the unwinding would benefit or not benefit the bankruptcy estate and whether it should impact the current initiated RSA has substantial amount of the debts structure reporting it.
2: All right. Let me tell you that that was completely wrong. So here's the next question. What have you done in the past 30 days?
1: Well, we, we've started the investigation. What have you done specifically? What, what have I done? Well, um, uh, yes, sir. I, with, I, with Mr. Vogel, uh, I spoke or have spoken with counsel as to what the investigation should entail. We've, in the document requests have gone out to, I believe, at least seven or eight different parties. We've accumulated over 3,000 documents and 100,000 pages. We have a list of seven or eight people who need to be interviewed, and and those interviews are in the process of being set up. And council has provided us with summaries and discussion about all the various transactions that we should look at and why, and my Teresa is one of them.
2: One of many. All right.
1: I I mean, in fairness, infer looked at what jurisdictions we should be looking at and what potential causes of action there may or may not be. That we should consider after we reach. Uh,
2: oh, all right. Anything else you want to tell me?
1: I'm happy to answer any questions, Your Honor. And now we rejoin the hearing as the it announces its decision.
2: During the examination of Mr. Balanson, it became very apparent to me that I have a huge problem. I hadn't taken a lot of comfort that I had a well-intentioned I had taken a lot of comfort that I had a well-intentioned, competent, interested, engaged, independent board. Not a board, but a group of independents. At least with respect to half of that, I cannot now make that finding. And I am extremely concerned about what I heard today. I could not imagine anything worse. And I want that to echo to everyone concerned. If I hear that again, my respect for Wilkie Farr will not keep me from issuing a show cause order. I hope that message is conveyed. I do not want to see a fiduciary to this estate ever appear in front of me ever again, unprepared, uneducated and borderline incompetent, never. There are 13,000 people that are depending upon smart, educated, well-paid, competent people to come to a hearing prepared. I didn't get that at all today. I'm very disappointed. There are 13,000 employees that feel like they got sure change today.
1: That's a, that's quite a lot of, of a statement from a judge on a scale. Bad day on the one hand to global thermonuclear war on the other, what does it mean when a bankruptcy judge speaks on the record with this degree of emotion?
2: Ted, I've been in this business for 40 years. Um, this is off the scale. Um, I, I think this is about the angriest that I've ever seen a judge react to uh, testimony and to a witness. Uh, this is definitely thermonuclear warfare kind of stuff. Um, it's, it's 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 unbelievable in in many respects. But I, I I will also tell you, you know, we just read a snippet of the transcript uh, to our audience, and uh, when I read the judge's comments for the first time uh in full today. I had seen excerpts from them in some of the press reports, and I know that they've been making the rounds among our colleagues because they're they're so remarkable. I I I read the rest of the transcript. I was I was interested I thought there had to be something more to the judge's feelings than simply the way that Baylinson didn't answer his questions. But let's start with what, what did what did Balanson do wrong when the judge said that's exactly wrong. What was the judge looking for when he asked him what was important in looking at these transfers? And, and I, I, I can't know exactly, but I can I, I think what triggered the judge was when Balancin answered. He said that he was going to look at the impact on the restructuring agreement, you know, that which was the prepetition agreement of the sponsor and the and the lenders. And if he was truly independent. He would be looking at whether the transaction could be voided and the value that could be brought to the estate, regardless of the effects on the restructuring agreement. So the fact that he answered with that in mind certainly made it seem as though he was trying to protect that agreement, which was an agreement of lenders and, and equity sponsors. Right. Well,
1: and there's, there's a, a piece in that where he answers that a, 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 an intentionally fraudulent conveyance can be undone. And that's actually not the law. Even if it's done unintentionally, a fraudulent conveyance can be undone. Doing it intentionally raises a whole other specter.
2: Right. Well, it, it actually, if you can prove intention, it's easier to set aside the transaction. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, there's, for constructive fraudulent conveyance, which doesn't involve proof of actual intent, you have all sorts of valuation evidence. That's where you have to show that the, the seller received less than reasonably equivalent value Uh, And that has to be coupled with another factor under the relevant law. So uh, actual intent is even easier to prove. And you could argue that this asset stripping demonstrated actual intent. To me, it's not that different than selling the sheep, which is why I brought up Twinescape (laughs) uh, earlier on. Um, But I also... It it all comes back to sheep. When I look through the rest of the transcript, um, I read in particular the lengthy... um, Examination of Mr. Balanson by Marble Ridge's attorney. And Balanson did not come across, Balanson was being presented as a kind of an expert uh, with deep knowledge of all of these issues and had already been on the case supposedly investigating for a month. But his his answers to many of the questions seemed to be evasive. Um, They didn't come across as expert. There were many things he said he didn't know. Um, th- it, it, there was a sense that he wasn't being candid uh, in that, and the judge, of course, was listening to all of that before the judge asked the questions. And then I think the judge was also alarmed when he said, "What have you been doing for the last month?" And and Balanson had already testified that if his investigation uncovered uh, grounds for challenging the My Teresa transaction, that it could delay the, the bankruptcy completion and jeopardize the company's success. But when the judge said, well, what have you done for the last month? It, it was actually very little. It didn't seem as though right. he'd been acting with the haste that one would expect to have been undertaken in an investigation if time sensitivity was an issue in terms of completing the case.
1: Right. Well, the court found a new way to deal with this situation. The court asked counsel for the official committee of un in the bankruptcy case to run a parallel investigation to that of the independent director's. Shortly after this hearing, the independent directors started issuing subpoenas to basically everyone involved in the 2018 restructuring transactions, and Mark Balanson, he stepped down due to a health emergency. Marvel Ridge Capital, they were appointed co-chair of the Official Committee of Unsecured Creditors. They were a fiduciary to fiduciaries. That's going to be important later, but now we're going to take a break for some messages from our benevolent corporate sponsors. When we return,
0: Gavin Solmanese is the experienced leader for complex financial matters, restructuring and litigation consulting. Whatever your situation, we have the ability and know-how to restore troubled companies to profitability and growth. We've successfully completed financial advisory engagements for hundreds of companies that have gone on to renewed health and success. No matter the size or complexity of the case, our clients always work directly with senior professionals and receive exceptional work product. We know that asking the right questions is always the first step in defining the true problem. Generating alternative solutions and finding a clear path forward is what we do. To us, It's all about results. What you do next is what counts. When there are tough decisions and hard choices to make, you need smart, strategic people beside you. Choose the team who never stops working until your problem, dispute, or financial crisis is resolved. Visit Gavin Solmanese at gavinsolmanese.com or call us at 302-655-8997. We hear it and read about it every day in the news You are listening to Business Disrupted. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to contact at disrupted.business. Now, back to the show.
1: Welcome back. We've been talking with bankruptcy law expert Michael Richmond about the Neiman Marcus bankruptcy cases and everything that can go wrong with bankruptcy cases. Again, a disclaimer. Everything we're talking about today is sourced from other media and the public records of the bankruptcy court proceedings and the criminal charges filed. All parties are presumed innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. Before the break, the independent directors of Neiman Marcus, after withering criticism from the bankruptcy court, kicked their investigation of the debt petition conduct into high gear and the official committee of unsecured creditors began its investigation into the debtor's conduct in earnest. About two months later, the remaining independent director, Scott Vogel, informed the court that his investigation had uncovered that the bankruptcy estates held viable constructive fraudulent conveyance claims because the company was likely insolvent at the time of the 2018 restructuring transaction that moved My Teresa out of the reach of creditors. A few days, later, the creditors' committee filed its preliminary report, saying the same thing, and stated that the My Teresa transaction was an actual, constructive, fraudulent conveyance. Petition, a periodical covering distressed business, called the committee's report a masterclass on proving fraudulent conveyance. Michael, let's talk about the distinction between actual and constructive fraudulent conveyances, and we started to get into this a little bit earlier, but we should dive more deeply into this.
2: Sure. So uh, an actual constructive fraudulent, uh, excuse me, an actual intent um, fraudulent conveyance uh, doesn't require uh, proof of reasonably equivalent value. Um, You can sell an asset for full value, but if you do so in a way that basically deprives your other creditors of an ability to collect, that is, you did it at a time when you knew you were going to be responsible to other parties and rendered yourself insolvent, or put yourself with too little capital to operate. We call those constructive fraudulent conveyances. And so where there's less than reason, well, that actual intent, you don't have to show that, you You do have to show that you rendered creditors unable to collect. In constructive fraudulent conveyance, you don't have to show actual intent, but you have to show less than reasonably equivalent value. And then that it left the company insolvent or without sufficient capital to operate. So that's the that's the principal difference. That's why I said earlier I think if you actually have evidence of actual intent it's it's an easier case to prove because you don't have valuation evidence you don't have to prove that the company was insolvent or even rendered insolvent. All you have to show is that right. there was intent to defraud creditors.
1: Right. And and the the hallmark of an actual fraudulent conveyance is that it was made with the intent to hinder, defraud, or delay creditors. So you are, you are literally trying to, to take money out of the creditors' pockets or take value away from the creditors' reach. It doesn't matter whether it leaves the company insolvent. It doesn't matter whether there was reasonably equivalent value. It's the intent that, that is the hallmark, whereas a constructive constructive fraudulent conveyance may have had the best of intentions, but it just so happens to have left the company insolvent uh, and, and was for less than reasonably equivalent value.
2: Exactly, and and I I think that on the facts of of the My Teresa transaction, uh, an argument could be made that it was an actual intent fraudulent transfer. I, the 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 circumstances of it moving from one part of the corporate family where many creditors could have at it to another part where only a few could have at it looks like an intent to defraud the creditors that you took it away from. Uh, But what the committee found Go
1: ahead. I was going to say that's that's exactly what the the committee's expert, Dr. Israel Shahed, found, which was that this was an intentional this was an actual
2: But they also they, they, they had a pretty good case to also make it a constructive fraudulent conveyance because they showed, and I think the same expert um, put together a report showing that the transfer, if they weren't insolvent when it was made, the transfer certainly rendered them insolvent.
1: Yeah. Yeah. They may not have been insolvent at 8 a.m., but they were insolvent They're at 5 right. p.m. Well, about a week after the uh, the presence of these claims related to the My Teresa transaction was announced, the remaining independent director announced a global settlement. The settlement would earn Teresa contributing $10 million and 140 million shares of series B preferred stock in my Teresa to the debtors. And the debtors would contribute all of those shares and all of that money to the unsecured creditors of the bankrupt companies. Certain lenders would waive their deficiency claims against the debtors. So there would be no competing claims to those of the unsecured creditors. The creditors wouldn't be diluted in their rates. The the creditors committee would appoint a plan administrator, and the post-bankruptcy plans would be funded with $1.5 million from the debtor. Unsecured creditors would also not be sued for claims under Chapter 5 of the Bankruptcy Code, which are casually called preference. In short, the debtor wouldn't sue to get back money paid to unsecured creditors in the 90 days before the bankruptcy. After two years of litigation, Marble Ridge had been vindicated. The transaction they claimed was a fraudulent conveyance two years earlier was determined to be a fraudulent conveyance, both by the independent director and by the creditors committee. The value creditors received in the settlement would be more than they would have received had they won in court or had the asset transfer not happened in the first place. Marble Ridge was the heroes of the case, and the entire distressed investing world took notice. Marble Ridge's future looked bright. Chapter 3 showdown at marble ridge the problem with getting stock in a bankruptcy case is this unsecured creditors can't really do anything with stock in my teresa and they're out of money creditors need liquidity not stock how to remedy these points well as it turns out there's a there's a vibrant market for stock in well performing companies the creditor committees counsel wanted a way for unsecured creditors to be able to cash out their stock and believed that such a cash out option was necessary to ensure that the plan was approved by the unsecured creditors who would be receiving that stock. Before the global settlement was even announced publicly, Dan Kamensky, founder of Marble Ridge Capital, co-creditors committee, emailed creditors committee council with an outline of a proposal in which Marble Ridge would guarantee the purchase of 60 million shares of the My Teresa stock at 20 cents per share. And they would purchase those shares from other creditors wishing to sell. They would also purchase the shares available to any noteholder that did not wish to participate in getting the stock. So, great. The co-chair of the committee believes so strongly in the settlement that his fund is willing to put $12 million on the table for other creditors. That's great. And when the global settlement becomes public? Two days later, other potential investors become interested in acquiring the MyTeresa stock. And two of those investors approached investment bank Jefferies Financial Group seeking to purchase, in total, up to 80 million shares of the My Teresa stock. Freeze, doing what investment bank does, reached out to the committee's advisors and informed them that they had a potential offer for 30 cents a share, or 50% more than the proposal that Marble Ridge had made. This information made its way to Mr. Kaminsky and Marble Ridge because, remember, they were co-chair of the creditors committee. Here's the thing about investment banks. They work for lots of clients, and they're a relationship-driven business, as is pretty much every other discipline in the bankruptcy space. And Marble did a couple hundred thousand dollars of business with Jeffries each year. So after Kamensky learned that Jeffries was communicating an offer that beat Marble Ridge's offer by 50%, what did he do? Well, he allegedly contacted Jeffries, allegedly reminded them that Marble Ridge was their client to the tune of a couple hundred thousand dollars a year. And allegedly ordered Jeffries not to make an offer for the My Teresa stock. What happened after that? Jeffries contacted counsel for the Creditors Committee, informed them that Jeffries would not be an offer. And then them why? That Marble Ridge told them not to. We casually throw around talk about fiduciary duties, but it's worth exploring at this point what fiduciary duties really are. Michael, what are the fiduciary duties we're talking about, and how do they intersect with a person serving on a creditor's committee in a bankruptcy case?
2: Um, In a a bankruptcy context, it's actually pretty simple and clear. Uh, The duty of a member of a creditor's committee, the fiduciary duty, is to do your utmost to enhance and maximize the value for all unsecured creditors in your constituency. When you Seek and accept appointment on a creditor's committee. You don't do so to advance your own position. You have to not use that position on the committee to advance your own position as a creditor. You're supposed to use it to advance the position of the constituency as a whole, all the unsecured creditors. And, you know, sometimes we get cases and we say about someone like Mr. Kamensky, what did they think they were doing? But in this case, Kamensky is a former bankruptcy lawyer. He practiced for many years. There's He would have been advised of his fiduciary duty as a committee member anyway, but there's no doubt that he understood the law and his legal obligations. And that comes up in the next chapter. But So that, that's it's a very simple prospect. When you sit on a creditors committee, your fiduciary duty is to all unsecured creditors.
1: And so in, in the universe of fiduciary duties, they generally break down to a duty of care and a duty of loyalty. The duty of care means that you should make reasonably informed decisions. You're entitled to, to rely on your advisors for information, but that you exercise the care that a prudent person would exercise given the same circumstances in making your decisions. The duty of loyalty means that you won't take opportunities away from the thing to whom your fiduciary duty runs. So in the case of a corporation, uh, you won't usurp corporate opportunities. You won't self-deal, for lack of a better term. And in the case of a creditors committee, it, it requires that you not use your position on the committee to benefit yourself at the expense of other unsecured creditors. So creditors committee counsel learns of Kamensky's call with Jeffries. And they let his, they let their displeasure be known to Kamensky. Rather than back the situation, Kamensky leans in. He allegedly calls his contact at Jeffries again, and suggests a modified story in which the whole thing was the result of a misunderstanding. That he didn't object to Jeffries submitting a bid. The call allegedly started with Kamensky saying this calls never happened. But here's the the Jefferies investment banker on the other end of the phone on that call that never happened was a retired Navy SEAL. And when someone who has clearly overstepped their bounds probably violated their fiduciary duty and is trying to push you out of a deal, acts really suspiciously, and you're in New York State, what do you do? Well, in this case, the investment banker recorded the call. And then you and your firm share the contents of that call with counsel for the creditors committee, who shared it with the United States trustee, US Department of Justice's watchdog, over the bankruptcy system. And counsel for the committee also shared it with the bankruptcy court who ordered an investigation. Jeffries provided the US trustee with a transcript of the call in which Kaminsky says, quote, I'm going to jail, okay? Because they're gonna say that I abused my position as a fiduciary, which I probably did, right? Maybe I should go to jail, but I'm asking you not to put me in jail, end quote. This is roughly on the hitman caught on tape saying, and I quote, I killed him. I killed him. I killed him dead. The U.S. trustee determined that a breach of fiduciary duty had occurred. Marble Ridge resigned from the committee. In a hearing in bankruptcy court on August 29th, 2020, Marble Ridge offered 40 cents a share for the stock, a third greater than the offer Jeffries would have made, had they not been turned away from the process, and twice what Marble Ridge originally offered. This was almost certainly to buy peace. The bankruptcy court wanted none of this, stating that the court couldn't have someone who's engaged in potentially criminal conduct involved in this process. Marble Ridge closed its doors and started winding down its fund. Neiman sought to have the wind down process stopped to ensure that there would be funds left to pay whatever damages were found to be caused by Kamensky's actions. In the end, Marble Ridge agreed to put $55 million in escrow for satisfaction of the debtor's claims. A few days after that last hearing in court on September 3rd, 2020, the United States Attorney for the Southern District of New York announced that Daniel Kamensky had been charged with securities, wire fraud, extortion, and obstruction of justice for his alleged acts in trying to suppress competitive bidding for the Teresa stock. In a moment of wry observation in the announcement, the U.S. Attorney noted that, quote, Kamensky attempted to obstruct an investigation by trying to persuade the competitor to change his account of the coercion. Competitor. that otherwise, this is going to the U.S. Attorney's Office. As today's charges show, Kamensky was right about that. Piling on, FBI Assistant Director in Charge William F. Sweeney commented, quote, in a conversation with an employee of the investment bank, Kamensky went as far as to say, maybe I should go to jail. Today, we've removed the maybe and forced him to answer for his conduct. Looking at what's next for Mr. Kamensky, it's not encouraging. The record here is pretty challenging for him. The securities fraud charge and the bankruptcy crimes each have a maximum sentence of five years in prison. The wire fraud charge and the obstruction of justice charge each have maximum sentences of 20 in prison. A total sentence of 50 years is a lot to think about for a 47-year-old lawyer turned investor, though it's unlikely he will ever be sentenced to that much time. Michael, this series of events is a difficult thing to watch. On, On one hand, Marble Ridge was a fiduciary to all unsecured creditors of Neiman Marcus because of its role in the committee. On the other hand, they're a fiduciary to their own investors, and trying to lock up a good deal is an exercise in that fiduciary duty. This seems like an inextricable conflict between Marble Ridge's Ridge's two obligations. How could they have handled this differently?
2: Well, you know, this is really a tragedy in in many respects. And, and, And again, it's hard for me to not think of this as a a full narrative story. In fact, it was already an interesting story before the break, and then we get to all of this. You know, when we were talking earlier about the hearing uh, involving the motion to appoint an examiner, uh, Marble Ridge and Kamensky were the heroes. It was their dogged pursuit of the company over the two years prior to the bankruptcy that uh, shone a light uh, on the My Teresa transaction and. It was they were really front and center in seeking an examiner and having the judge uh, probe uh, Mr. Bellinson uh, and uh, and express his uh, concerns and disgust really with uh, Bellinson's supposed independence. I mean, all of that was attributable to Kamensky, and you could even say that the, the settlement, which resulted in substantially the the, the fortunately the transferred asset was given to. The creditors, that's all from Kamensky. Uh, whether that would have been discovered or pursued or whether it would have happened without his having done all of that is is hard to say. So at that point, when the asset, the stock, comes into the hands of the creditors committee and now the discussion turns to monetizing it, as soon as Kamensky decided that he should make a bid for that. He should have resigned from the committee and made whatever efforts he was going to make to bid for the stock independent of anything happening with the committee because at that point he was clearly trying, forgetting about what he did with Jeffries. Before we even get to the call with Jeffries, he is in bidding for the stock putting his position ahead of other unsecured creditors. He is seeking to profit from this asset. So that was the first, you could argue, he should have stepped down even before that. But at that point, as soon as he wanted to make a bid, and regardless of what happened with Jeffries, had he stepped down from the committee and not called Jeffries, um, then he would have come through looking like a hero uh, and maybe could have even made a claim in the bankruptcy process that he made a substantial contribution and gotten an award of some Portion of his fees for doing so but he didn't do that instead he ignored the rules of the road he ignored the guardrails he ignored the lanes and he decided to do what he could do to maximize his personal his firm's personal profit potential in the deal and lost all sight of any of the rules
1: so i want to explore two points that you've just meant so let's say on monday uh he learns that the stock is coming in and Marble Ridge decides that they might like to make an offer for the cash out option for the stock. If Marble Ridge resigns from the committee on Monday, can they then act in their own interest on Tuesday or the, their fiduciary duties are done as of the moment they resign, they can act in their own interest as soon as well, they're they're off?
2: Great, great question. I, I guess the, the, another thing you cannot do as a committee member is is make use of inside information to your own advantage. So if if, if he had acquired – inside information about what the committee wanted to do, or or even valuation information that, that he used to inform the bid, then he could still be violating his fiduciary duty. So to your point, excellent point, probably smarter to have gotten off the committee once he learned that a settlement had been agreed, and well before it got to the committee stage. So it may have already been too late to avoid a taint at that point.
1: But but two days later, when the settlement was made public and other investors were finding their investment bankers of preference and making their desire to acquire the stock known, at that point, um, as long as they weren't using inside information gained as a result of their service on the committee, Marble Ridge was free to act in their own interest if they're off the committee, correct?
2: Except for the extortion and, and well, pollution and so, part of it. But yeah. Right.
1: And so… And, and so that's the second question. So let's say that Marble Ridge was never on the committee. They're just an investment fund that's lent money to Neiman Marcus, and they're, they're looking to maximize their recovery, as is their obligation to their investors. There's no fiduciary duty issue. They're just a creditor like thousands of other creditors. And they decide that they want to make a bid for this, and they find out that the investment bank that they use a lot is going to try and make a bid and make a market for the stock against them. is it it impermissible that they call that investment bank and say, hey, we have a relationship. You're going to ruin that relationship if you compete with us on on, on this deal. We don't do business with people who outbid us. Is that in and of itself a problematic event?
2: it, It is a problematic event because you're dealing with the value of a bankruptcy estate. So maybe maybe in the, in the non-bankruptcy world, maybe that kind of pressure can be exerted. But in the bankruptcy world uh, and under the, the U.S. Criminal Code, uh, making threats or using means of extortion like threatening a relationship in order to have somebody not bid value for an asset uh, can be a bankruptcy crime. Now, I have not looked at the actual provisions of Title 18. I think they're in the criminal complaint that the FBI Cited, but I don't think they depend upon a predicate fiduciary duty. I think that they apply to anybody who tries to interfere with the value of a bankruptcy estate. It's like a it's like an act that violates the automatic stay that damages the property of the estate willfully.
1: Right, and the automatic stay is the protective measure in bankruptcy that that prevents creditors from seizing assets or moving against the debtor once it's in bankruptcy. It's a it's a protective measure that gives debtors the breathing necessary to seek to reorganize or, or get their fresh start. So if Neiman Marcus were not in bankruptcy, uh, Marble Ridge were, were bidding for just some company down the block from its office. And, and Jeffries were representing a, a competing bidder with, without the bankruptcy law regulatory overlay would calling Jeffries and saying, Hey, get out of my transaction. Would that be different?
2: So it might be now, again, I want to, I'm clearly not an expert in in non-bankruptcy forms of relationship leverage like that. Um, But I don't know what, I'm not aware of what crime or what law would be violated if um, in a private auction context that wasn't otherwise regulated by a state or federal law, uh, if somebody said, I don't want you to be in this because I want this asset. I don't know if that's clearly against the law. It might be, but I don't know. I can't say that for certain. I just believe that in the in this context, because we were dealing with a bankruptcy estate under bankruptcy administration, that it was very different. Interestingly, when I first heard about this case, I assumed that it was a public sale of assets under section 363 of the bankruptcy code, which is usually where assets get sold. Uh, and the rules right. under that part of the bankruptcy code also expressly prohibit bidders from colluding with one another in order to affect the price of an asset. Uh, so interesting that what happened here was it was more of a private attempt by the committee to monetize the asset rather than a sale under Section 363. But I think that's right. what kicked in the, the external criminal provisions that ended up being cited in the FBI's complaint.
1: Well, thank you, Michael, for joining us today. Thank you for your insights. And perhaps most importantly, welcome to the Mighty Disrupted Players. Our guest has been Michael Richman, bankruptcy law expert and attorney at Steinhober Swanson LLP in Madison, Wisconsin. His firm is on the web at steinhoberswanson.com. And he is on Twitter at bkorator1. I'm not going to spell either of those out for you, but you can see them in the show notes on our website. Join us next time as we explore the business of comedy. Making people laugh is serious business. But when making a living involves timing, creativity, and more than a little bit of luck, how do comedy professionals navigate those minefields and still have a viable business? And what happens can't leave home because of a global pandemic? We'll speak with professionals Leah Bonama and Dustin Chafin to learn what the business of comedy really is today. Next time on Business Disrupted, comedy minus time equals tragedy. Business Disrupted is hosted by me, Ted Gavin. Our executive producer is Robert Chilino. Our audio engineer is Aaron Keller. Theme song and original music by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Branding by Peg Fitzpatrick and PMG Group. Antenna maintenance by Amy Gavin. PR and social media by Carol Lunger, Emily Stern, and ABN Native. You can find episode guides, show notes, and sign up for our newsletter at our website at disrupted.business. Email your thoughts to contact at disrupted.business. You've been listening to Business Disrupted and the World Talk Radio Network
0: thank you for tuning in to business disrupted be sure to join ted gavin for another edition of the program and some more great stories next monday at 1 p.m pacific time and 4 p.m eastern time on the voice america business channel until we speak again have a great week